Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It is wildfire season, hot and dry. In several cases this summer, efforts to fight wildfires have been hampered because of drones in the area. Utah lawmakers recently voted to allow authorities to disable or damage unauthorized drones near wildfires. That bill would also impose harsher penalties on people caught flying the aircraft. Today on the program, we're going to discuss this legislation. We're going to talk about fighting wildfires in general. We'll also look into the future of fighting wildfires. And we're joined in studio by Scott Bushman. He's retired now from a long career of fighting wildfires and training wildfires around uh, the world. Scott Bushman, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And uh, retired is probably a strong word. You're still still on call sometimes, right? And uh, still teach at UVU? I still teach at UVU in the, in the winter and the off-season uh, fire science down there. That's the uh, Utah Fire and Rescue Academy down in Provo. And I am, uh, I'm still active on the Northern Utah Type 3 fire team locally and uh, as a safety officer. Mm. And pretty much I've led all my other quals. I'm to the point in my career where my knees are kind of preclude spending a lot of time hiking up and down the mountains. So Okay. <laughs> I'll mention uh, parenthetically, you, you were until recently president of the Cache Valley Historical Society, still active in historical circles as well. Well, my term expired last month, so now I'm uh, still on the executive board as former president of the Cache Valley Historical Society, but still very active in that, yes. Okay. We bring in as well uh, Sam Ramsey, who's regional aviation officer with the U.S. Forest Service Intermountain Region. Uh, thanks for joining us, Sam Ramsey. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so let me start with you, uh, Mr. Ramsey, uh, the, uh, maybe outline the, the problem. We've seen in the news, uh, I guess uh, aviation is an important part of uh, fire suppression, um, and uh, drones is a relatively, it's a new development, and so uh, you have to deal with that. Uh, how, how, how does it interfere? Well, well Tom, the, uh, the drone the drone situation that we have now, we've, we've kind of seen it on the horizon and seen it coming for a while. With the increased popularity of drones, uh, they've, they've actually become like the new tripod for photographers and given people uh, the ability to take phenomenal photographs and video uh, using this technology. So it's become very popular for people to, to take out the scenic areas or to... Uh, Areas where there's some excitement going on, and try to get their own their own view of it through the drone. Uh, you know, when I when I when I talk about UASs or unmanned aviation systems with people, I, I, I try to remember that you know or, or remind them that there's there's two sides to this story. There's a good side and a bad side. And what we're what we're hearing most of right now is is the negative side of drone use, where people have taken them out and tried to. Uh, get some film opportunities at some of the fires that we've been trying to fight. Um, nationally, I was just looking on a, a paper that came out yesterday. We've had 24 drone incidents this year uh, from the beginning of January to present where they've intruded into uh, either firefighting operations or firefighting training operations. And uh, the the danger with with drones in a firefighting operation is people people think that uh, that they're visible from the air, and they're very difficult for a pilot to see from an airplane. Mm. And then it could uh, be could be dangerous. Uh, the, a collision is that what we're worried about? 
Yes, mm-hmm. it, it really is. It's uh, you know you take a, fi- a, a five pound drone or a five pound object of any type and and hit it with an airplane that's going 140 miles an hour or faster, uh, or hit it with a moving part of the airplane such as a propeller on a fixed wing aircraft or a tail rotor on a helicopter. And the, the result can be a catastrophic failure with the aircraft, it can, and, and in turn, it, you, can, you can end up ultimately with a fatal accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a worry. For an, for an example, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been a professional pilot. I was a military pilot before I came to the Forest Service, and uh, I had a Starling uh, strike an airplane that I was flying low-level uh, and go inside a duck, just a, a small soft, fleshy bird, and uh, it basically knocked the generator and the electrical system out on the airplane. Wow. So picture, if you will, five pounds of metal and batteries going into the engine of an airplane or striking a tail rotor or a main rotor of a helicopter, and and you have the recipe for disaster. Hmm. Scott Bushman, uh, the uh, what's been cited by the governor is the expense um, Scott Rand was just talking about the you know the safety, and that's of course paramount. The expense is also part of this. Yeah, the expense is for aviation, for uh, in air resources, it's tremendously expensive. And when we have uh, resources in a fire, typically we have to pay them whether they're flying or not, especially helicopters. And when you ground uh, a helicopter, you still pay the price. Of, and we're talking. Not a few hundred dollars an hour, but thousands and thousands of dollars an hour. And so that's money wasted. In terms of uh, operations on the ground, when you have to pull air resources from an ongoing fire, uh, usually that means you have to pull ground resources also. And a lot of the work you've done all day long, uh, you lose that. It's very quick. So, yeah, there's a a really negative effect when you lose your resources, especially to something like a, a drone that just happens to wander into your restricted area. Uh, let me go back to uh, to Scott Ramsey. Uh, the bill's sponsor, uh, Evan Vickers, um, by the way, Republican from Cedar City, he talked about it, you know, he... He'd like to shoot these drones down, but that but the, the bill provides for disabling uh, the drones. How, how does that work? Well, there's some technologies that are, that we've become aware of recently that uh, that would use technology to either jam the signal to the drone and force it down, um, or be able to identify where the drone is geographically in the area. One of the problems that we have is when we have a drone incident on a fire, we frequently are able to spot the drone, but we're, it's very difficult to keep sight of it. So the difficulty arises is, is we call the uh, aviation assets off the fire, and then how do we know when, to, when it's safe to send them back in? Because typically we lose sight of the drone. We don't know if it's still airborne or not. And so we have to take the safer course. And frequently it, t- it, it results in it taking longer to get those assets back on the fire. Um, you know, in terms of disabling a drone, uh, we would, at this point, I think there are, the agency is looking at the different technologies that are out there. We've had some people come forward and volunteer um, their, tech, their particular technologies, and, and that research is ongoing. Uh, 
I don't know that we're going to be shooting them down or anything like mm-hmm. that. Well, um, that would be dramatic, but I guess uh, maybe increase uh, other safety concerns as well. Uh, what you said, yeah. uh, I'd never thought about why people are flying drones out there. And you said in the vast majority of the cases, it's uh, they, they want to get some photographs. They're, they're, they're curious about it. This is a way for them to extend their eyes. Sure. Uh, my One of my hobbies is radio control airplanes, so I've been in touch with this technology for years. Uh, and the people that are using it are typically mounting uh, high-definition video cameras on on the drones that are that are stabilized and, and they provide excellent excellent footage, um, and and so I look at it as it's, it's just another it's just another type of tripod being used by photographers, and that's really what they're doing most of the time. They don't fly; it's not so much flown for sport as it is to to obtain a view of something that they could uh, could not otherwise uh, uh, obtain from the ground. You said there's a good side and bad side of this. What what is the good side? I guess people are. They're curious about it. They're they're aware of the fires. Yeah. Well, um, well, I'm I'm talking a totally different good side. Oh, okay. <laughs> we we've uh, you know we've we've seen uh, drone incursions into fires, which have been problematic. Last year, uh, we had uh, we had a commercial uh, commercial UAS or drone that we used on the TP fire up in Idaho. Uh, this was a planned event. Uh, all the proper documentation was in place. The, air, the aircraft uh, had a transponder so that we could see it on radar. Everybody knew where it was, and, and it was flown largely as uh, to determine how well it would interface with other aviation assets on a fire, and it did very, very well and, and was able to provide some information to the incident management team on the ground to help them fight the fire. And, and that's what I see as the good side mm-hmm. of this technology. Um, there are obviously uses, good uses that that, uh, that we would like to use these uh, drones for. We'd like to be able to use them in forest management and forest health, uh, also be able to use them on a fire. But that's those technology capabilities are developing for us at this point. We're not to the point where we can use it. We're still in test or beta phase on a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, but I, I say there's a good side to this industry. Uh, the industry has been very proactive. Uh, they've contacted myself and other other folks uh, trying to help us with the problem users that we're, we're having, trying to help find them. Um, we see the industry as being very responsible. It's what we're hearing in the news is is really the result of a few a few operators that are just behaving irresponsibly and and putting others at risk. Scott Bushman, this is, raises a question. That, like I said, I hadn't thought about why people would fly drone. I guess they want to get good pictures and they're curious about it. I raised a question before this technology. Did did you encounter people while you're fighting fire who were curious about it, just wanted to get out there and watch it? Did you have interferences that way? Yes, of course. Uh, uh, as uh, when, when we go to a fire, usually we'll, we'll establish a temporary flight restriction over, over the area. And, and what that does is we try to keep civilian aircraft out of the area so it doesn't interfere with our air operations. Uh, and every once in a while, we'll have a looky-loo, somebody that'll with a, a, a fixed wing, 
that will come into our area, fly over it, maybe not knowing that we've got a TFR in the area. And in that case, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and we'll try to catch a tail number on the on the aircraft and report it um, to the FAA. And, and there can be some consequences. If it's a consistent thing, they may lose their license. There'll be some fines. And so it's, it's pretty a normal thing. Uh, again, it, it, it's a safety issue here. If you're working with helicopters, that becomes fairly scary. But if you're doing air tanker drops with fixed-winged aircraft with lead plane coming in and then you've got air tankers following them, uh, the potential for catastrophic collisions, it, it really goes up. And so uh, when we see that, uh, usually we have to respond accordingly and, you know, uh, get those people out of there, let them know, uh, have somebody at the air base waiting for them uh, with a cease and desist order. I don't know. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's always been a common problem. Mm-hmm. Let me bring in a uh, – uh, Yes, go ahead, and then I'll bring in a comment. I, I, I was just going to say, Scott brings up a, a very good point. You know, one of the most dangerous things – that we do, that we try to mitigate as much risk as we can on are the tanker operations, and and the lead plane. Uh, to give you a, a a mental picture of what the pilot in the lead plane is doing as he's as he's leading the tanker through to make their drop retard and drop, they're flying at 150 feet typically. They're flying around 140 knots, 120 to 140 knots, which is about 140 to 150 miles an hour. Uh, they're frequently flying close to terrain and close to trees. Um, they're w- working in canyons and mountainous terrain. And while they're doing this and manipulating and operating the aircraft, they're talking to people sometimes on as many as four or five radios simultaneously. They talk to them, they're talking to the people on the fire line directly below them. They have a radio that's monitoring the dispatcher. They have a radio that's taught that that's also working with the tanker behind them, and they're also monitoring air traffic control frequencies. So this is a task-saturated job, and to expect them to be able to, to see, to be out there looking for, for a drone, um, if they see it, it's going to be at the last minute uh, without much, and there's typically no room to maneuver. And that's what makes this such a critical a critical problem for us, and that's why we pull the assets out of the fire area until we're absolutely sure that the airspace is clear, mm-hmm. because there's just no room for distraction up there. It's, you, you add in the fire and the smoke and everything else that's going on, and uh, they have a difficult job to do without having to look out for for uh, a, a, another flying aircraft in their area. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, get a comment in and a question from Dennis in uh, Logan talking about uh, good uses for, for drones. Um, and uh, we'll get into talking a little bit about what's, what it's really like. We've got some uh, people who've actually fought fires here. Um, I think people are curious about that and maybe some of the history and the future. 
Scott Bushman, for example, has trained firefighters in Russia, right? That's right. Uh, so talk a little bit about that as well, with uh, differences in uh, in other countries. Uh, and you can join the program. We hope that you will with your question or comment. Talking about fighting wildfires, especially uh, the the, uh, the problem now of drones. And the uh, Utah legislature has, uh, has passed a new law about that. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Toll free anywhere you are. Or you can get a uh, question or comment to us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at UPR Access. We have with us uh, Scott, uh, Sam Ramsey. Uh, Sam, I'm sorry, I called you Scott earlier. So uh, Sam Ramsey, okay. um, Regional Aviation Officer, U.S. Forest Service, Intermountain Region. And we have Scott Bushman uh, with us, who uh, is a longtime uh, firefighter, teaches at UVU, and uh, wears several other uh, hats as well. Uh, more following the break. Synthesis, space, the expanse, explosions, implosions, particles, objects, combustion, and fusion. On the next Radio Lab, a series of prehistoric murder mysteries which, which get at the origins of us. One of the greatest discoveries ever. That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It is fire season. Uh, luckily, it hasn't been too bad, at least in Utah. I think we've all seen the, the photographs and the video from, uh, is it Alberta or British Columbia? That incredible fire up there a little earlier in the summer. Uh, so knock on wood that it won't get worse in the West, but uh, it's dangerous. And, of course, uh, firefighters go out to fight these wildland fires. And uh, their job is made more difficult these days by unmanned aircraft, drones, Utah legislature has recently passed a uh, bill that would um, provide for disabling of these drones, also fines uh, for for those who fly them, uh, try to make it safer for the firefighters. We're talking about firefighting uh, in general, and you can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll free, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at upraxis. Let's go to uh, a uh, question and comment from Dennis in Logan. He says, glad your guests mentioned all the good uses for drones. Ironically, isn't the future of firefighting using much larger drones so pilots don't have to risk their lives? The technology could also be used for crop dusting, which is one of the most dangerous jobs in agriculture. Uh, so let me turn to um, Sam Ramsey. Is is that is Dennis right? Is that the future of firefighting? Larger drones, pilots don't have to risk their lives. Uh, yeah, we're actually there. There is uh, there's quite a bit of truth to that. We uh, the Forest Service, in conjunction with the Department of Interior, ran a test last year. Uh, using a HIMAX helicopter, which is a Type 1 heavy lift helicopter that the Marines have been using in Afghanistan uh, as a UAS. Uh, it's, it's what we call an optionally piloted aircraft. Um, you can, it can be flown from a ground station remotely. Uh, it has the capability of lifting thousands of pounds of cargo and moving it with great precision to a, to a spot 
in low visibility conditions has proved this time and time again for a number of years over in uh, Afghanistan. We had it up at Lucky Peak up in Idaho. The Lucky Peak Helibase hosted a test, and they did a demonstration up there where they used it to, uh, to do some bucket drops with water as well as do some cargo loads up onto a ridgeline up in the mountains. So the technology is being explored. Um, and as we get into it, uh, right now, the, the most immediate use that we're going to be seeing with the technology is in data collection, I believe. Uh, I think that's the, that, that's the first step. And as, as the technology matures and the airframes become larger and more capable, I think we will see some aspects of, of firefighting uh, where it can be employed. And uh, Dennis also mentions uh, crop dusting, which is a which is a, we know is a dangerous occupation. I guess drones could be used there. Yeah, I, I can't speak to, to the crop dusting side of it, but I, I would say this: the uh, when we when we did the testing with the HiMax, it's it's using things like like GPS signals and ground maps to to come up with very precise navigational flight flight plans. And, uh, and that's the type of thing that I could see agriculture uh, being able to use, to use that, too, because it could, it could lay down a very precise uh, spray pattern on the ground. I'll turn to Scott Bushman to change gears a little bit here. Uh, I'm curious, I think p- people would like to know the kind of person that gets into fighting fires. You're a longtime hotshot. Um, it's a dangerous, dangerous, right? This is you know incredible temperatures, uh, you know backdrafts. You know, the, the wind could change direction. Uh, to nail that part of it down. There is a uh, firefighter memorial campground up at uh, the Ash National Forest. I'm very familiar with that. My dad worked for the Forest Service up there for for many years. Yeah. You know, people actually die in fighting fighting fires. Uh, so I guess my specific question to, to you first of all is, uh, what's it? You know, take us inside the fire. What's it actually like? Well, uh, to answer your first question, what kind of people get involved in this? I'll say only the very best people. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, as a hotshot, and I, I worked with hotshots, uh, engines, and, well, and with the smoke jumper program for many years. And, uh, you know, you get all kinds of people. But I think as in the fire culture, as we become more and more better trained, uh, more expectations are put on us. It's more demanding. You tend to see people that are uh, educated, highly motivated. I mean, highly motivated. These are type A personalities. And uh, the college kids, a lot of college kids, a lot of kids that have, uh, we get a lot of veterans that will come into this because there is a certain amount of challenge. Uh, it's physically demanding, incredibly demanding, but it also has a mental challenge. Uh, financially, it can be quite lucrative. Uh, especially if you're a college student trying to make tuition uh, for next year. But the, the kind of folks that are recruited, hired, and retained are people that have very special characteristics. I've got to say, besides being physically fit, they're motivated, uh, they're team-oriented, they're smart, they're, they tend to be readers, uh, they study fire, they go to courses, not just once or twice, but year after year, uh, trying to build up their quals. Some are career-oriented and others, uh, I've had a lot of people that have worked for me are now doctors. Some are in the military. Uh, they're all over the world. And some run agencies. Uh, they're, 
you know, fairly high up in the business, but many are very, very successful. Others, uh, well, I don't think I've got anybody in jail yet, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they, they, they've all done well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I ran the uh, Logan Hotshots for 20 years, and so I, I like to keep track of these guys, see where, how they're doing, and uh, they are well-placed in, in our society. Mm. I'll come back to my second question. I wanted to turn to uh, Sam Ramsey first. You, you said you mentioned you were in the military before, military pilot. What, what uh, attracted you? What got you into uh, firefighting? Uh, well, I, I began in active duty for eight years, uh, flying B-52s, uh, came back from Desert Storm and had a break in service, and then got on with the Utah Air National Guard flying tankers. And the same year I got on with them, uh, a friend of mine was the chief pilot for the Forest Service in the area, and they needed a pilot in short notice. And so I spent the summer flying smoke jumpers up in McCall, Idaho. And that that kind of set the hook in me, but I, I committed to a military career track. So when I finished uh, my military career two years ago, uh, I was approached by a member in the Forest Service who had heard that I was available and, and uh, jumped at the chance to come back and work with this group. As Scott said, uh, the, the summer I had with the smoke jumpers was one of the more rewarding summers of my aviation career. I was working with extremely highly motivated people, um, very professional and dedicated to the duty they were performing, and it was uh, it was really a very rewarding experience. Hmm. Scott, you uh, there, there are differences. We had some email traffic before the, the program. You told me there's smoke jumpers, hot shots, repellers, and engine crews. Tell mm-hmm. me briefly, the smoke jumpers, I guess they jump... Into the fire or near the fire? Yeah, that's yeah. A, a, a smoke jumper is a different. I mean, that's a it's a very elite, highly trained, and small force, and their their mission is primarily initial attack. And, and so, uh, what they'll do is they'll fly them in. Uh, as Sam knows, they'll get a stick of jumpers out of McCall when they get five or six lightning strikes reported overnight. They'll get out, they'll circle, and their mission is to drop two or three people in there to put these fires out quickly. They don't like to leave smoke jumpers in for too long because they are a valuable resource. And so a lot of times they'll have to hike out or they'll send a helicopter to pick them up. But they usually go in with the idea of uh, going in for 48 hours and putting the thing out. Hot shots are a little bit different. Uh, those are uh, crews that are kind of like the heavy uh, infantry. They go in for the duration. They are... They have dedicated transportation. Their their mission is large, extreme fire behavior where they can go in and they stay there. They usually stay, stay till the fire's controlled. And when they go in, they uh, they used to fly them. Now they typically like to drive, but there are 20 organized it's a crew with radios, food, water, uh, lots and lots of tools, chainsaws, and and they go anywhere in the country. They're, they're very mobile. Uh, engine crews, of course, are usually stationed on various districts or, uh, you know, a location. And they're sent all over the country, too. But primarily their job is to initial attack fires locally. And I know in Logan we have a, an engine crew here. Uh, the state of Utah has an engine strike team. Cache County, all the counties have brush trucks now. And they're, you know, to put out these small fires that run up the hill and get really, really big. And then what was the other one? Yeah. Uh, repellers. 
Oh, the repellers. Uh, <laughs> well, that's an interesting group, too. Those are uh, aviation resources. The United States has a fairly significant repel program, uh, uh, as I remember, where they, they will fly into a, uh, a fire, they'll hover, and they can drop two, three repellers onto that with gear. And again, it's an initial attack resource. There's advantages with the repellers over the smoke jumpers, only that they can, uh, they're not having to worry so much about the wind, and they can drop them, um, you know, right down on the ground with gear. When, when I worked in Russia, I was a Russian heli repeller, and I went through the Russian training version of that. And then uh, their, their helicopters are bigger. Uh, we had a 20-person crew, and whereas in the United States they drop, you know, it's a single two or three people. We drop our 20-man crew plus gear onto the ground with one ship, you know, we, and it was quite a process. But the idea is to get them there, to get them fast, and, you know, where there's no roads, you can't drive to it. Repellers are a good, effective resource to use. Hmm. I want to come back to, to Russia. First of all, uh, back to Sam Ramsey. Uh, both of you gentlemen are, are using, it's, it's striking me, using military terms. It's, uh, you know, you can imagine the fires of the enemy. You're talking about tactics. You're talking about specialized training. There's danger. Um, it, it, it sounds military. Well, uh, <laughs> in, in the fire community, we have drawn from uh, military expertise for years and years. And, and there's reasons for that uh, that go back, but a lot of our uh, leadership training courses, uh, we've integrated with uh, Quantico and the uh, Marine Officer Training Program, where we've had actually Marines will come out and they'll train us. And a lot of our leadership courses have uh, kind of been borrowed from the military and we've used military advisors because, as you point out, uh, you know, we, we do act very, very similarly. And, uh, you know, a chain of command, uh, the national, what they call incident command system, it's very much similar to a military operation. Mm. Sam Ramsey, I imagine your military experience would, there'd be a lot of overlap when you go to fighting fires. Yes, there is. In fact, it's... Uh I, I would say uh, one of the parallels to the, to the military experience is the jointness in what we do in, in terms of working with the cooperators and partnerships that we have federally uh, with federal, state, local, tribal, and community resources. Um, there's a lot of integration of a lot of different organizations into one very functional synergistic team that, that goes out on the fire and, and ends up being the incident management team, where, where the incident management team can, can bring all these resources to bear for a successful outcome in a wildfire situation. Uh, the, uh, as Scott says, a lot of parallels in the leadership and the structure. Um, uh, by the same token, there's a lot of uniqueness, too. Uh, there's a lot of tradition in the Forest Service, um, a lot of very specialized skills and very talented people that, that make it work. And our partnerships with the, with the Bureau of Land Management and, and other, other folks that are, are doing very similar, uh, very similar work in the field also 
also helps us to, to move the technology forward and, and come up with better, better ways of fighting wildfire and better ways of integrating with the community. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, policy. You can extend the military analogy there, right? The policymakers, the, the president... Uh, if you extend that to the United States, would would determine who the enemy is, and then the military goes goes and attacks. So there has been change in policy regarding uh, filed firefight uh, regarding uh, fighting wildland fires. Talk a little bit about that. I want to hear about Russia, and I'd like to hear so just maybe some personal experiences from uh, each of you gentlemen. Uh, what it's r- really like out there on on the front lines. More following the break. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University. We do as much, we eat as much, we want as much. Sojourner Truth. Truth was born into slavery and escaped into freedom. Illiterate, she traveled widely speaking for abolition and women's rights. She counseled free slaves and tried unsuccessfully to get them federal land grants. She will forever be remembered for her Ain't I a Woman speech against gender inequality, delivered at the 1851 Women's Rights Convention. Remarkable Women is made possible with support from the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State University, providing students another perspective of current societal issues. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. I'm joined uh, by Scott Bushman, who's a former hotshot. Uh, he trains firefighters, uh, uh, teaches at UVU, the program there. We're also speaking with Sam Ramsey, regional aviation officer with the U.S. Forest Service Intermountain Region. We're talking about wildfires and how do we fight them, getting some behind the scenes. We uh, started out talking about drones. We could continue talking about drones if you'd like as well. You can direct the conversation by calling 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. What's been your experience? Um, and you can reach us by email as well to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. You can find us at upraxcess. Um, let me uh, talk a bit about how policy has changed. I think we have an awareness that... Uh, there has been a change in, in what the policy has been and how we fight uh, wildfires. Uh, back in the day, and for many years, it was fight all fires, right, Scott? It was, yeah, they used to have suppress what they, everything. What they call the 10 o'clock rule. And this this is from the inception. Uh, suppressing fire uh, kind of went with the job when, when the national forests were created. Um, and when I started with, the, with uh, the Forest Service, and this is back in the early 70s, we still worked under the 10 o'clock rule, which were every fire was put out, and if, and, and if you couldn't get it out by 10 o'clock the next morning, you had to call resources in. That's changed. Uh, now we have different options, management options like that. Uh, what they call it is uh, managing fires through objectives. And so a lot of fires, depending on the condition, uh, what what is uh, in the pre-plan will be totally suppressed. Others will, you know, you're looking at different objections. It might be just uh, let the fire burn and monitor it. If it's up in the in the high rocks uh, and it's not going to go anywhere, you know, why why risk, you know, life and limb to try to get people up there to put out something like that? And there's also this idea of prescribed fire doing good for the environment. Uh, 
after Yellowstone fires in 88, I think there was a real shift in the culture that, that realized that we've put out fires for so long. Uh, we have a huge fuel buildup in the National Forest or all through the West, and that uh, we needed to try something else. Uh, you know, this goes back to management. Uh, the prescribed fire program where we would go out in the fall when uh, the indices were lower, potential for spread was lower, and we'd actually try to start reducing fuel loads through this prescribed fire program. I think the, the you mentioned Yellowstone. Yellowstone, I think, for a lot of people was uh, kind of a personal education. You, after that, that fire, which used the word, you know, a lot of people use the word devastating for that, and it was kind of depressing to drive through some of those areas or see the pictures. But then you see the regeneration, and you see sure. you, you see the ecology of it uh, up up close and personal. One of the interesting things about being so old as I am is. Uh, you know, I remember I spent all summer in Yellowstone with, with, with the crew back in 88, and I've been back many times, but I think I, I went up there in early July, and by mid-September, as I was walking through the burns, I was always starting to, already starting to, to see uh, new vegetation growing up, and I thought that was kind of interesting. I was there up last summer doing uh, painting, landscape painting, uh, of a place that had burned out, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And it was kind of fun because, like, uh, uh, it just go back to the same place again. So it's right. It, it's, uh, Yellowstone is looking really well. It's coming mm. back nicely. Mm. Sam Ramsey, I want to direct this to you. And I don't know how much you can say, being official representative of the, of the Forest Service. <laughs> uh, the, so ecology is part of it and what we've learned there. But, but uh, you know, there's what you could call political pressure, local political pressure. So, you know, if a fire approaches a, a house, you know, there's pressure on, on you to put it out. It, obviously, if it approaches a town, you you got to put it out. It's it's People are living closer and closer to, to wildlands. Sure, and we, we call that the wildland-urban interface. And and today we have a national cohesive wildland fire management strategy, and it, it's basically got three legs. The wildfire response, which Scott was just talking about, and the way that we look at the way that we look at wildfire and and risk mitigation and and how we we ensure that the public and the firefighters are as 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 safe as they can possibly be. Um, the second leg is resilient landscapes, and and that that goes to uh, f- using fire as a tool, you know, to reduce the risk of uncharacteristic wildfires. These these fires that just kind of develop their own weather system and and become so strong that that we just have to step back and let them go. And by developing these resilient landscapes through prescribed burns, we're able to we're able to to mitigate a lot of the risk by thinning fuels that are out there and have been collecting for a number of years based on past management strategies. And the ultimate goal is really to have fire-adapted communities, to have communities that understand that fire uh, has a beneficial aspect to it, that if, that if, it's, uh, if it's used correctly, that if opportunities from natural starts are used to thin fuels and mitigate risk around communities that it it benefits everybody. We have so many people now moving out into the country, uh, moving into these beautiful landscapes, but they're 
a lot of them are very, very fuel intensive, and uh, there's a lot of things communities can do to uh, make themselves less uh, less exposed to a risk of wildfire intruding into the community and destroying structure and and value that, that that's there. I want to get into uh, some personal experiences. I think that we have opportunity for that with the people that actually uh, been involved in fighting fires. So let's start with Scott Bushman. Uh, tell me first about Russia. You went over to, uh, in fact, Siberia. That's where you went, right? To yeah, I like to say I, I was exiled to yeah. Siberia for a couple of summers. And uh, essentially what the Russians were interested in uh, was our incident command system. And they had sent people over here. Uh, Russia has a, a, a history of firefighting, but because it's so fast with so few roads, everything is aerial there. And so they have their their uh, National Forest Fire Protection Agency uh, is geared towards smoke jumpers and and helicopters, and there's thousands of, uh, of people that do that. But where they had problems is when, uh, kind of what Sam was talking about, the urban interface fires, and where they have a a fire in a community where the local fire resources, you know, the fire engines and municipal resources would go out there. It would spread it to the woods, and then they would send in the jumpers. And they wouldn't talk to each other. They didn't have a unified command structure. And as a result, when I'm told, people died. Uh, huge fires. Nobody talked to anybody. There was nobody in charge. And, and in the United States, under... Uh, what we call unified command. We have one person in charge. We have one team there. Uh, in the urban interface, we have uh, we have what they call joint command, the unified command. So along the Wasatch Front in, say, Salt Lake County or Utah County, uh, if it's on state and private land, there, there'll be a representative there, usually from the state of Utah. And if it's going on to the national forest, uh, they'll they'll come together in a unified command and then they will represent everybody. And so this is uh, this is why our system is so effective. In Russia, they were working on that, and they may have that now. Our technology was ab- above theirs. Uh, we had radios. We had maps. You know, they uh, back in the 90s, uh, when they emerged from the Soviet period, everything was so restricted. Uh, what we took for granted, you know, using GPS units uh, just to— to map the fire, uh, they didn't have that. They had other technology, and they're very good at what they do. But uh, again, they were very interested in our our organized hotshot crews, our jumper program. They have jumpers too, and it, you know they're they're tremendous people, tremendous firefighters, uh, very resilient. They know their business, uh, but uh, we wanted to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So that's I was there. I was a coach. I worked with their. They were building a hotshot crew program, and so I was there to, to coach along. And I think one year I went back, and I ended up being the uh, crew cutter, Sawyer. I ran a chainsaw for him <laughs> because that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this must be, uh, you know, we, we think of vast areas in the, in the American West. Siberia must be just a vast, vast yeah, you could you, you could lose the United States uh, many times over in Siberia. It's mm. uh, it is fast. I think people don't realize about. Uh, I you know statistically, I think one in every tree in the world is in Siberia. It's just such a huge landmass. Uh, 
you know, time zones, you know, whether they have 10 time zones, eight time zones to go through that. So it's, it, it's a lot of area. Uh, one thing that's interesting is because it's so big, they have a lot of fires and they don't suppress a lot of them. Sometimes they'll burn all summer and nobody will know they're there. Uh, therefore, the environment, the, the fuel load tends to be less severe than it is here. <laughs> hmm. It's just more natural because there's not sure. people there. You don't even know about the fire. Interesting. Uh, let me turn back to Sam Ramsey. I want you to take me inside the fire, as it were. Uh, you, you, uh, it was interesting to hear you talk about uh, the pilots on those fires and then the tankers having to monitor, what is it, four or five radio transmissions at once. What else can you tell me about how what the difficulties are and what the the dangers, what it's like to actually actually be there? Well, uh, you know, the, every fire is different, and and for a lot of the initial attack with uh, when I flew smoke jumpers, frequently it would be a small uh, small fire where we jump drop two or two to four smoke jumpers on it to, to catch it early. But occasionally you'd go into a situation where you had a larger fire and you had to to place smoke jumpers in an area that was inaccessible by any other means. And uh, one one fire comes to mind. We were uh, flying on a fire up in, in uh, Idaho, and uh, the fire had gotten a, a pretty quick start. And there were some. There was an engine company on one side of it. It was several hundred acres on the side of a on the side of a mountain. And over the ridge on the other side was our drop zone. We were going to place smoke jumpers on the other side of the fire to begin building a fire line. And as we came around, uh, avoiding the column of hot hot air and smoke, we were dropping the firefighters just beyond it into this drop zone. And about the fourth run that we made on the drop zone, as we came around to drop them in, I, I looked up. To, I was looking out to see where the previous two jumpers had made. We dropped them two at a time, uh, see where they were. And I couldn't see them below us. And I looked up, and they were 1,000 feet above us going up in that column of hot air wow. coming off the fire. And, and that just kind of is an example of how... Uh, the unexpected happens all the time in a, in a fire situation because the fire develops its own, frequently develops its own weather. It, it develops winds and gusts and turbulence, uh, creates a very challenging environment for, for flyers and firefighters. Uh, it, at times it, it can be predictable and other times it's very unpredictable and it can move extremely rapidly. And it's very devastating. I mean, you, when you look at it from a distance, it looks beautiful. When you get up close to it, it, it's, it, it can function almost as a destructive machine. So uh, from the standpoint of an aviator, it's a challenging environment to, to, to fly in. A lot of turbulence. Uh, one of our lead plane pilots once described fla uh, flying into a fire uh, that was in the in the wildland urban interface right up against the city and it had burned into an area where there were uh, propane tanks and as he was leading the tanker into the uh, into the fire zone uh, uh, the propane tanks started exploding and he actually watched a propane tank go vertical right past his airplane <laughs> up and, and go right above him and behind him hmm. uh, as he was flying through the smoke 
or the edge of the smoke there. So uh, totally unexpected. I mean, that that's as close to a combat situation <laughs> yeah, well, uh, as you like probably it. ever going to find outside mm-hmm. of the military. Mm-hmm. But those are the kind of things that, that can that can sometimes happen. So about two or three minutes left, Scott Bushman. Maybe you'd take me take me there. You know, you'd have a most memorable experience, or well, I have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I, I guess uh, following up with Sam, uh, what it's like on the ground can be fairly uh, interesting. I, I've been on a lot of fires where they've had fatality fires. Uh, the Kramer fire up in Idaho and the Salmon River breaks, a uh, 30-mile fire. And what's impressed me is on the ground when these when you get involved in a blow-up, how powerful these things are and how, you know, as, as a supervisor, uh, if you don't have your, your plan in place, your escape routes, your safety zones, uh, it, it – you're in a lot of trouble and walking over these fatality sites a couple of days after the fact and looking at markers where the bodies lay you begin it's it's very sobering and you realize just how critical your job is but also how dangerous it is and if you miss something and it could be a small thing uh, the consequences can be huge so you know when i look back on fires and uh you know, I, I can go back to the Butte Fire in 1985 where, uh, as a lookout, I watched 70 people deploy their fire shelters uh, on, on a burnout operation. And, and that that's, uh, I guess I'd call it sobering. You never get over things like that. You always, always in the back of your mind, you know, remember those situations. And are you doing everything you can do to make sure it doesn't happen to your people that you're responsible for? Mm. Yeah, that's it's it, it is really life or death, I guess, in many many situations. Very much so. um, Sam Ramsey, uh, just to end where we began with drones. So once this law in Utah goes into effect, I assume Forest Service will, if needed, di- disable drones in in the area. Uh, if we can get if we can get a suitable technology to do it, uh, I think that we would probably be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have to wait to see exactly how the how the law fits with us and with our policymakers in, in Washington. They'll they'll make that determination on how we'll interact with it. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Bushman, uh, assume at some point in the future you'll be you'll be back on a fire. Well, I, I'll probably if they call me, uh, I'm I'm back available after today. And if uh, they need a, a line safety officer, they'll, for one of the teams, they can give me a call. I'll go available. Okay. So, yeah. You teach at UVU, and I assume you have bright students coming through that program. To... Well, it, yeah, I teach coursework down there usually in the winter at mm-hmm. the Fire and Rescue Academy. And I usually focus on fire behavior courses, uh, basic fire behavior, and then uh, – Division training, division crew boss, strike team. Uh, there's a lot of courses down there, and I I usually teach two or three courses a year, or, mm-hmm. or a, a co-instruct classes, I guess. Well, uh, we uh, thank you very much, Scott Bushman, who's a former hotshot. He trains firefighters uh, now, and uh, also goes out out a bit uh, on fires as well. Has been with us in studio. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. And Sam Ramsey, Regional Aviation Officer with the U.S. Forest Service Intermountain Region. Sam Ramsey, thank you.
Thank you, Tom. And, uh, of course, uh, be careful out there, folks. It's uh, still fire danger season. Uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow. Periodically, we get together as the Utah Public Radio community. We're all avid readers, and uh, we put together a book list. We're going to have Elaine Thatcher back with me in studio, some booksellers, and we want to know what you're reading. Suggest uh, some good titles to the rest of us. That's what we'll be doing tomorrow in the program. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today. Next time on Philosophy Talk, identity politics. Slicing and dicing people by race, gender, religion. No wonder we're so divided. Identity politics isn't the problem, Ken. It's the solution. To what? To a society that marginalizes some identities while valorizing others. Why can't we all just get along? Identity politics next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. I'm Robin Young. Here in Cleveland, the police department is under Department of Justice review after the Tamir Rice and other shootings, and some officers are calling for a return to community policing, getting officers back in the neighborhoods. The better our relationship was with the community, the more they're going to call us and ask us for help. Next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This week, Republicans will convene in Cleveland to nominate Donald Trump for president. NPR and PBS NewsHour will be there, too. We're teaming up to bring you live coverage each night. I'm Rachel Martin. Join me, Judy Woodruff, and Gwen Ifill for speeches, interviews, and analysis, live from the Republican National Convention. Special coverage from PBS NewsHour and NPR News. Join us each evening at 6 o'clock through Thursday, right here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.